Good morning again, Arcadia. We have a lot to go through. I got a lot more to say than Sean did last week, so open up. Let's get, just, just dive in right now. Open up to Romans chapter 6. That's where we are. Today we begin Romans chapter 6, uh, and, and uh, we're going to spend six or seven weeks in this chapter because it is thick. It is deep. We're only going to do four verses today, but we, we have a lot of stuff to talk about uh, with this uh, chapter, and we also have to kind of set it up and be reminded of the context of chapter 6. Uh, it, 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 we have to remember that it's in, it's in context with chapter 5, which we just finished, and chapter 5 actually began a section of Romans where we talked about this middle section of Romans, or one of the middle sections of Romans, chapters 5 through 8, in which Paul is talking about the security of the believer, the blessings for the believer, and the sanctifying work done to the believer all through Jesus Christ and the gift of, of faithfulness that we have in Him. And now what happens in chapter 6 and 7 are, are really somewhat parenthetical. It's like Paul goes into this long parenthetical insert in order to deal with objections and concerns and questions that he anticipates that people will have to everything that he has uh, asserted and proclaimed and taught so far, especially as it relates to chapter 5. And the first objection or question or, or dialogue, imaginary dialogue that Paul starts to have, we see there in verse 1 of chapter 6. And, and that question that he deals with is clearly brought up in the wake of Paul's incredible statement, absolutely incredible statement in chapter 5, verse 20, where he says, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. And if you remember last week, as Sean talked about this, he said, you know, for years, human beings were in this world without the law. For hundreds and hundreds of years, did that mean that there was no sin? And it didn't mean that there wasn't any sin. It's just that that we didn't have any way of defining or describing sin. And so finally God's law comes in and suddenly we have some diagnosis. We have the ability to realize that there is sin in the world. And then one of the confusing things that we get about the law is that we think that by bringing the law into the world that might help control or curb or modify the amount of sin that we do. And the reality is, is that, is that as Paul says, in, in the law there is sin, that, that we the, the, the law doesn't do anything to constrain us from sinning. It just points out that we are sinners, that we are living in our nature. In fact, some people would say, well, we're going to sin even more when the law is thrust upon us. There's, just that, there's that thing about our nature that where we see a, a, a rule or we see a regulation or somebody tells us that, that we need to do something, we just naturally resist and, and push back. I see some of you sinners out there right now shaking your head going, I know what you mean. It's like, it's like you know, the sign that says wet paint and there's just fingerprints all over the paint. Or My favorite, years ago, outside of Payson, there was a sign that said no shooting and it was riddled with bullet holes, okay? So I just, oh yeah, I'll show you, okay? So where sin increases... You would think that God would look at sin increasing and go, okay, I've had it, and, and start to reject humanity. But Paul says, no, 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 no. That's not what happens. Where sin increases, grace abounds all the more. Because the only antidote we have to our nature, our sinful nature, is the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and that is God's grace for us. 
And so he says, look, sin abounds. Grace will abound all the more. You and I cannot out-sin the grace of God. Go ahead and try. This is radical. Some people would even say it's scandalous. And the reason is because when you start teaching this, there is naturally going to be there are naturally going to be people who would push back against this and start to test boundaries and start to, and start to say, well, wait a minute, if that's true, why don't I just go on sinning? And that's exactly what happens. Many people come along, many people, people of every ilk, will come along, hear this truth, and our first flinch will be to turn this into a new form of spirituality by sin. That's pretty good, spirituality by sin. And we all do it. Religious people do it. Non-religious people do it. Christians do it. He's writing the church in, in Rome, so Christians would think this. You and I think this. Maybe not out loud, but secretly. Atheists think this. Mormons, Muslims, Hindus, U of A graduates, all of us think this. Even the good people in the church at Rome are thinking this, because Paul's writing them. Even the good people here at the church of, of Redemption Arcadia, and especially those that Redemption Tempe would think this as well. So Paul addresses this in verse 1. He says, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And, and, and Paul is, this is actually the second time Paul's brought this up. Maybe not in the same context. He references it in chapter 3 where he, he, he talks about what other people might say. Well, let's do evil that good will result. And he's saying that's really the wrong attitude to have. But, but when you teach this, when you teach that your sin is just covered by grace, more and more grace, you will have people walking up saying things like this. Well, well, Paul, think of it this way. I'm actually doing God's work by sinning because it brings more grace. I'm doing God's work by going out and sinning. It brings more grace to me. It brings more grace to my family. It brings more grace to my community. It brings more grace to the church. I am a saint in the church because I'm out there sinning. I know there might be a little bit of exaggeration there, but you get my drift. Or, or somebody else who comes and says this. Now, this one is more subtle, but a lot, a lot more common. The person who kind of says, well, well then why, why is sanctification so important? Why is that process of beginning to look more and more like Jesus so important if, if all we get for our sin is more and more grace? Sounds like sanctification really isn't that important. Or this one, hey Paul, you love this grace thing so much and now you've given us this really cool formula to have more grace than we've ever imagined. It's a really simple formula. Grace plus grace equals, I'm sorry, I blew it. it apparently the formula is not that simple from somebody, for somebody who graduated from North High School. Let me channel my, my algebra teacher from high school. Here it is. Sin plus sin equals more grace. That's a great formula that you've given us, Paul. And, and again, we're not the only ones. History is littered with this. I got a couple of examples. In 1824, for example, the Scottish author James Hogg published his treatise that dealt with this issue. It was called uh, Private Memoirs and Confessions of a Justified Sinner. And, and Hogg wrote this in an attempt to intellectualize this position, that we should dive headfirst into sin because it just means that more grace is going to come to us. And not only him, but there was the, there was the uh, late 19th century, early 20th century uh, Russian monk, Gregory Rasputin, who also gained a lot of traction teaching this heresy or this, or this false teaching. 
And this, this heresy, this false teaching, has been variously called by different names over the last two centuries. The primary one is one that Sean actually referenced last week. It's called antinomianism, which literally is against the law-ism. It's a philosophy that says, I am going to live my life against the law, ism. And it becomes an ism in our life because apparently that's the best way that we can gain grace and become closer to God. But other, uh, other words for it is our, our libertinism. We get to take liberties with the grace of God. Or licentiousness. Because there's so much grace, we're going to take license with this. Now, Paul, of course, argues against this idea forcibly, uh, not only in, chapter, in verses 2, 3, and 4, which we're going to look at today, but throughout chapter 6, he argues against this idea forcibly. But I think we really have to admit <clears throat> that there is a lure of this ideology, that, that it makes sense. I can understand why people say this. And there's three major reasons why we can understand that people would look at this and legitimately think that this could be a good teaching. Number one, it is logical. There is a strong component of logic to saying this. If you're told that God's response to sin is just more love and more grace, I think it's reasonable to ask the question, then why not do it more? Uh, this, is, this is kind of, you know, most of us when we were growing up, there were a lot of axioms that our parents would teach them and one of them was you can't have your cake and eat it too right well if we can sin and have more grace it's kind of like having our cake and eating it too and it's kind of like we can say to our parents you were wrong about that cake and eating it thing i can have my cake and eat it too look what paul says and we need to understand also that the gospel is the only whatever you want to call it religion faith system uh, worldview, whatever you want to call it, but the gospel is the only one of these that teaches that works or cleaning up your life or keeping a list of rules is not the way to salvation. It's the only one. So it's logical that when someone, come, uh, when someone begins to understand that this is the gospel, that they would respond this way. I'm going to sin more because grace will abound even more. So it's logical. Second of all, it's also natural. Natural meaning it, it, it appeals to our human nature, our fallen, fleshly, unredeemed human nature. Our nature is bent on sin, Sean said last week, and I am going to repeat this week after week after week for the next several weeks. Uh, we sin because we are sinners. Sin is ingrained in us. He said this, sin is in our DNA. It's at the core of who we are. And besides that, just please take off your pious Sunday morning church faces for five minutes and let's just admit most sin is really fun. And that's why we do it. Because it brings pleasure. Because we, we think there's life in it. It feels good. It's the old Schraderism where he says, if you're not having fun when you're sinning, then you're not sinning correctly. It's, it's, it's what we like. In that moment of sin, what we're doing is we're trusting sin more than we're trusting Christ. And so in a sense, you could say that when we sin, we are practicing disbelief in what God has given us. But we are believing in the sin, that that's going to bring us what we want, life. Of course, we have to remember, and the Bible even acknowledges this, that sin is only fun and pleasurable for a little while. Hebrews 11 <clears throat> tells us that the pleasures of sin are fleeting, that they're temporary. And Luther, the great reformer, 
uh, wrote that the season of sin does bring pleasure, but then it brings destruction and woe. But even at that, it's still natural for us to go there. So it's natural, it's logical, and then number three, there's even a sense that this argument is erudite and pious. It's intellectual, it's intellectual and scholarly, it's academic. It's an intellectual argument that claims that making grace abound is the goal of the religiously pious, so we should go on sinning because grace will abound. Yet in the end, the argument doesn't hold water for a number of reasons. And we should remember that Paul's entire Christian existence lived to present the gospel not only as an answer to our sin problem and an answer to legalism, which we probably talk about at Redemption Church every Sunday, that the gospel is an, is an answer to legalism, this idea that um, morality and rule-keeping and the law is somehow what draws us closer to God and saves us, that our behavior is what's really at issue. It's not only is a gospel the answer to that, but the gospel is also the answer to libertinism, to licentiousness, to antinomianism, which... Paul is talking about here. Paul knows the, a, a more excellent way than both legalism and license, and that is the life of the resurrected Christ. Paul knows that true grace does not fuel sin, but rather loving obedience. That, that if we understand true grace, it doesn't fuel rebellion, but rather righteousness. That, that true grace does not fuel license, licenseness, licentiousness, but rather it fuels love and a biblical kind of godly love at that. And Paul's not the only one. Uh, Jude also makes a strong, strong case in a different context, admittedly, but he makes a case about this as well. In, in his little, I can hardly even call it a letter, it's only one chapter, so it's more like a New Testament postcard, but it's the last book right before Revelation. And in verses 3 and 4, he writes this. Beloved, although I was very eager to write you about our common salvation, I wanted to write to you about the gospel and, and the joy that we have in the gospel and, and how wonderful things are and the communities working well and the churches and blah, blah, blah. But rather than that, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For, and here's verse 4, for certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God. Those who pervert the grace of our God in order to practice licentiousness, in order to practice libertinism. They, they pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. In other words, as many who have said in the past about this passage, uh, those who use grace for license simply don't understand grace. I was, uh, I was reminded Friday night that I have a lot of stories about getting pulled over by police officers. I don't know if that's a problem or not, but I have another one right now. Okay, uh, A number of years ago, maybe six, seven years ago, uh, on a Saturday I had I'd gone up to Sedona with a, a good friend of mine, and we hiked Wilson Mountain. It's a spectacular spectacular hike and we were done and we were coming home and we're driving down I-17 and we're just kind of approaching the Verde Valley, Camp Verde. And if you, if you know anything about I-17 there, you know, it's that long downhill kind of thing and people are just racing down that hill. And I was actually doing really, really well. I was only going 79 racing down that hill, okay? 
And, and, and of course, 79 is one of those sweet spots where you say, if you're only four miles over the speed limit, they won't pull you over. It's like you're a sinner, but nobody notices, okay? So, so anyway, we're going 79, and we go right by a cop, and Andre goes, hey, man, there was a cop there. How fast are you going? I said, 79, we're good. Cop pulls right out, gets right behind me, and pulls me over. Pulls me over at that, uh, that one uh, runaway truck ramp that's right before Camp Verde. So we go in there, and he comes over. He says, you know why I pulled you over? And I said, yeah, I was, I, was, I was going 79. And he goes, yep, that's right. And he said, you know, it's only four miles over the speed limit, but that makes you a speeder. <laughs> and I remember right that moment, I'm a pastor and a theologian, you know. There's no such thing as, as sinning just a little bit. You're either sinning or you're not, okay. And the, and the police officer was very helpful because he clarified that for me, okay. <laughs> so I say, yeah, no. and he takes our information. He goes back to the car. He's going to go do his thing. And so Andre and I are sitting there, dead silent. And, and you all have, if you've been pulled over before, you know that there's a certain amount of time that passes before you realize it's not a warning, it's a ticket, right? Because it takes longer to fill out the ticket, right? So we get to about seven or eight minutes, and I turn to Andre and I go, I'm getting a ticket. And he goes, you sure are, I just thought that. You're getting a ticket, it's been way too long. And so finally, another couple or three minutes pass, and, and the police officer comes back, and he hands us back our stuff, and he says, listen, guys, you were speeding. You need to slow down. It's not safe to be going this fast. That's why we have speed limits. It's for your safety, so I want you to slow down, but I'm just going to give you a warning, okay? And I was like, thank you. Thank you so much. I, I was really, really grateful. And so he left and got in, and... and and I, I didn't put it in reverse and almost smash his car like the last time. I learned that lesson. But I get back on the I-17, and we're going along. And I notice that Andre keeps looking over at my speedometer. Like 10, 15, 20 minutes. And, and after a while, now he's laughing. He's snickering every time he looks over. I said, what, what are you doing? He says, man, you are right there going 73, 74. You are not even going 75 miles an hour. And he goes, what's the matter? Are you scared? I said, no, 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 I'm really not scared. Think about this. These guys on I-17, they're all over the place. What if I start going 80 again and the same guy pulls me over? And I, and I told Andre, I said, I know this might sound a little bit cheap, but, but when he extended that grace to me, when he extended that mercy to me, it was almost like he was inviting me into a relationship with me because there was an implied trust that he was giving me. And there was this great gift that he had given to me, unmerited, undeserved. He did not give me what I deserved. He gave me mercy and grace. And I said, I don't want to violate. I may never see him again, but I don't want to violate that relationship. Have him pull me over again and have him say, so this is what you do with my gift. This is what you do with my grace. And I said, so that's why I'm not speeding. I'll wait for another day to speed. But anyway, that's why I'm not speeding. So Paul presents this potential argument to his teaching, and then in true Pauline fashion, he answers it in verse 2 very forcefully. He says this, By no means are we to continue in sin that grace may abound. By no means. How can we who died to sin still live into it, in it? And, and the Greek little idiom that we translate by no means, me genoito, is the strongest negation in the ancient Greek language. It's almost, not quite, but almost as if Paul is cussing. And the literal translation of me genoito is one word. 
Inconceivable. So think Princess Bride. Inconceivable. That's what Paul is saying. And he's saying it with this face. He's like, you don't get it. You absolutely don't get it. Now, I know some of you might be thinking, especially if you're new, you're going, okay, wait a minute. You just said in verse 1 that the question they ask is natural and logical. Why is it now inconceivable? Well, Paul begins to explain the answer to that good and expected question. The question is a very good question, but there is an answer. And it boils down to this. It boils down to Paul trying to explain what the true gospel is. That a surfacey understanding of the gospel isn't enough. We need to go deeper with what the gospel is. And so Paul reminds us, you have died to sin in Christ. And you think about what, what salvation from sin includes. When, when we Christians talk about what, is it, what does it mean to be saved from sin? And, and we talk about how, well, it delivers us from eternal punishment. That's good. And, and, and we get to avoid the wrath of God on that bad day. And, and that's good. And, and, and where we're going to go, there's no presence of sin. And we have no more guilt of sin. But we need to remember that all those things we talk about are eschatological, meaning they come at the end. But there is also something that happens now. In this new standing we have in Christ now, we are also now, by the power of his death and the power of his resurrection, which we are now in because we get to experience everything that Christ has experienced. As far as God is concerned, he looks at us and he sees the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And now that we are in that, we are actually empowered to, pri to practice righteousness right now. We can do it. Through his power. We don't do it all the time because that old man, that old self gets in there. And we'll talk about that later in chapter 6. But that old self gets in there and, and clouds things up and wrestles with us. But now we finally actually have been empowered by the grace the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ to be able to practice righteousness now. And so what Paul is saying is that it's not just that you're justified you're now redeemed. Remember last week when Sean said, you know, we think that when we're saved, we're at negative five and we just get back to zero. This was a wonderful illustration last week. We just get back to zero and he's going, no, 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 no. You're not just back to zero in Christ. You're, you're way down the line. Infinity. Eternity. You're not just back to zero. So we're not just justified, we're redeemed. We're not just forgiven, we're made alive to God. And the key to this is, is that second part of verse 2. How can we who died to sin still live in it? This is Paul's answer to the question in verse 1. But it also becomes the axiom that he proves over and over and over again for the next 12 verses. And I want to read them to you. We'll get to them in the next several weeks. But listen to the constant refrain that Paul gives us. Death, life, death, life. So he says, by no means, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Verse 3, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of God the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And then verse 5, for if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. 
But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Verse 12, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members, your, your bodily parts, to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law, but you are now under grace. This is exciting stuff that we're going to go through for the next several weeks. I am overjoyed that we get to do this. But I think it would also be helpful to go through some of the misunderstandings or misinterpretations that some people have had with verse 2 in the past. That assertion that we're dead to sin. I want to hit them so that you don't ever make these these mistakes with this verse. Some people have taught, first of all, that being dead to sin, when Paul talks about this in verse 2, number one, that they have taught that the Christian is now totally unresponsive to sin. That we're not tempted, we're not interested, we won't look, we won't engage ever. That's simply not true. How many of you, after you came to Christ, quit sinning altogether? You never sinned again. And if you raise your hand, you just sin because you lied, okay? All right? It's not true. It's ideal, but it's not true. Christians still sin regrettably. And this is a dangerous misinterpretation, I think, because when the Christian does fall prey to sin, and we will, what happens is we begin to think, oh my goodness, I must not be a Christian. And we begin to get down on us, and, and it creates depression and fear and guilt All the things that the gospel opposes and takes out of our life. The gospel is anti-fear, anti-guilt, anti-depression. And yet, if we believe that this is what Paul is saying here, we will get sucked into that. And then it defeats the believer and it mocks Christ in their life. The second misunderstanding is this one. You must die to sin presently under your own power and discipline. In other words, it's a form of behavior modification. And I want to plead with you. We are not about behavior modification here because we are gospel-centered. The gospel is about our sin nature, not behavior modification. Now, this has often been taught, but is a clear misunderstanding of what's happening here because if you're able to modify your behavior through your power and your discipline, then this verse is about you and not about the gospel. And that would be moralism, not the gospel. You and I have died with Christ, and we live in Christ, and so any dying to his sin is all done by his finished work and by his grace. And any good work that we do, any good work that we do, is going to be by his power and grace. And it's not that we don't believe that discipline is good. I'm a big discipline guy. I believe that discipline is very good. But discipline without the utter dependence upon Christ is mere folly. And then the third misteaching is this. We are in the process of dying to sin, and we do that over the course of our Christian life. In practice, I'm not denying that this is true in the life of the Christian. This is true. This is called sanctification. We begin to look more and more like Jesus as we live with him. The problem with this interpretation, however, is that it does not interpret the verb died correctly. The tense of the verb is not imperfect, meaning that, 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 that is, it is an action that is still in the process of being completed even today and in the future, but rather the tense is aorist, which means it's a completed past action. It's done. 
This verse is about something that has already happened, not in the process of happening. And here's what it boils down to. Get this. This is it right here. Here's what it boils down to. This verse and this verb are not about what we do, but who we are. We are not into behavior modification. We are into who we are in Christ. We are into our new identity. So here's what Paul is getting at. And to be sure, I, I've read a lot of James Boyce and John Stott on this. I'm following them because they're right about this, okay? Paul is saying that in Christ, our identity has been changed. So our new life is now lived for something other than what it used to be lived for. We, we've died to our old life orientation, our old realm of living, and we have been reborn into a new life, a new realm, a new existence, a new orientation in which we now live. Now, here's where it gets tricky. If you have caffeine with you, take a sip. You'll need it, okay? But here's where it gets a little bit tricky. We can still revert back to that old life temporarily. We can act out and behave like we're still in that old life, and we do, but we will not continue to live in that old life because we have died to it and we have passed through to a brand new reality in Christ. You and I, before Christ, we used to live in sin and not give it a second thought. We didn't think anything about it. Now we live for God. And though sin still tempts us, sin still draws us, sin still invites us, sin still lures us, and from time to time, sometimes really often, sin still gets us, we know that that's not our life anymore, and so we don't remain there. Instead, we live a life of repentance. Instead of running from God when we sin, we run to God through Jesus Christ and embrace Him and we repent and we know that we come because we are standing in His grace as a result of the gift that He has given us. Luther said the entire Christian life is one of repentance. It's one of continually coming back to Christ, confessing what we've done and resting in His grace, resting in His glory, resting in His mercy. Because that's our identity now. Our identity is not to run from Him, but to run to Him, even in our worst moments. I want you to think of it this way. To, to quote that wonderful preacher, Sean Myers, track with me here, okay? I have a number of examples here. Once you become an adult, do you live in infancy anymore? Do you live in infancy anymore as an adult? Are you still a baby once you become an adult, it's not a trick question. Come on, you can, you can engage with me. It's all right, okay? Now, we will occasionally revert to infantile acts, right? Infantile behavior. My wife, Jackie, has a list of those that you could ask her about, email her if you want, okay? We can act childish or childlike, though it is embarrassing and even dishonoring because we are adults, but we cannot actually become children again. We cannot become infants again. We are, we are adults. Similarly, we cannot revert to sin. I'm sorry, we can revert to sin, but we cannot become children of the devil again because we are now absolutely guaranteed the adopted sons of daughters of God through Jesus Christ. We can sin but we cannot become children of the devil again. We are now sons and daughters of Jesus Christ. And it's because of what has been done by him, not us. And that's the case that Paul makes here. In Christ, you and I have died to that realm. 
We live for God now. And now, the picture of verses 3 and 4, which we'll finish up with, is actually that of the new birth, this new creation, the new realm that we, in which we live in. Uh, verse 2 was kind of Paul's thesis statement, and then he explains it further in verses 3 and 4, saying, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. In, chap- in, in chapter 5 of the second letter that Paul writes to the church in Corinth, he says it this way, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. The old has passed away and the new has come and all of this is from God. And, and so I want you to think about this. When people talk about their behavior uh, that, that is not good, their, their sinful behavior, their wicked behavior, their, or, or whatever, whatever it is that they're talking about, when they, when they talk about uh, the sexual perversion that they're involved in, or, or the gossip that they're involved in, or the envy, or the jealousy, or the strife, or the divisions, or, or the, 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 the stealing that they're involved, whatever it is, you hear a lot of people say, well, this is just how I'm wired. This is just who I am. I was born this way. This is the way God created me, blah, 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 blah. And you know what? There's a sense in which they're right about that. We were born into this fallen, corrupt nature. And so that's correct. And that is exactly why we need to be reborn. That's why we need to be born again by the Spirit by Jesus Christ. And I go to a very common, well-known passage to make this point. And I know for some of you this is really basic stuff, but it's really important to understand. It's John chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, For no one can do the signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Jesus knew that Nicodemus was coming to talk about how to be saved. And so he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Obviously, he's confused. And Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. This is a basic, fundamental, essential truth of the gospel. We must be born again. And I know for some of you, that's like... Old, old, old saying. I'm keeping the 70s alive here. That's like fingernails on a chalkboard. You hear those words, born again, and it's just like, ooh. But that's the fact. We have to be born again. You don't have to say it like that, but you do have to be born again. And the only way that you're born again is by the gospel, by coming to Christ, by being baptized into Jesus Christ. Now, we need to discuss the meaning of that word baptized. In this passage, often people think of water baptism here, the sacrament. But I want to explain to you that that's really not what Paul is talking about here. 
Uh, furthermore, many people look at this passage and, and, and believe that Paul is not only talking about water baptism, the sacrament of water baptism, but they use this passage to argue that baptism is not just a sign and a confession or a testimony that one is saved, but rather it is essential to salvation. In other words, you cannot be saved unless you've been dunked in, in water. But it's not essential to salvation. It's a fruit of salvation, but it's not essential. And the word here is not referring to the sacrament of water baptism. It's not. Furthermore, we need to remember that water baptism is as important as it is. I love baptism. Can't wait till we have our next baptism. We'll be dunking people in the horse trough up here. I love it. It's really important and it's a sacrament. But water baptism is something that we do. And, and if something we do is what saves us, then it voids grace. It makes grace nullified. And, and we just need to get rid of the entire New Testament. And then we're not even going to study the book of Romans anymore. And not only that, but think about this. If that's true, then Jesus essentially lied to the thief on the cross. Because when Jesus looked at him and said, today you will be with me in paradise, they didn't come and get the thief off the cross, dunk him in a horse trough, and then re-crucify him to the cross. They didn't do that. It's not essential. And I'm hammering away at this because I don't want us to get distracted with this idea that baptism is what saves and that Paul is talking about water baptism here. He's not. There's actually a couple, there are actually a couple of words in the Greek that we translate as baptize. And the word here, baptizo, yes, it means to immerse, to immerse fully in some context. And it also means, uh, it, it's, it's also, its meaning is in relationship to liquids in some context. But the broader and more common use of this word baptizo is this, a permanent change having taken place by some means. In other words, it's deeper than just immersion. It's deeper than just being dunked. So, for instance, I'm going to give you a number of examples here. For instance, to dye a garment or a piece of cloth, you do immerse it, but more importantly, the garment or the cloth is permanently changed by means of the immersion in the dye. It, it comes out no longer the cloth that it formerly was, and it cannot go back to being that cloth that it formerly was. Here's another one. In, in Greek antiquity, uh, people would often use the word baptizo uh, to describe a drunk, somebody who, whose life was completely and totally utterly, irreversibly under the influence of alcohol. And so we might say, today, we might say that person is baptized by booze. He's, he's, he or she is literally living life under the influence of the wrong spirit. Here's another example. The ancient Greek poet Nicander talked about in relation, he was trying to make this point about baptism in relationship to how we make pickles, Okay. So you take a cucumber, and here's the process, back then anyway, I don't know, I've never made a pickle myself here, I just buy them. You take up a cucumber, and the first thing you do is you baptize it, different Greek word, different Greek word, you baptize it in boiling water for a while. And then you pull the cucumber out. It's been baptized, but it hasn't changed. It's still a cucumber. It's a hot, sweaty, wet cucumber, but it is still a cucumber. Then you take the cucumber, and you baptize it, but this time baptizo, you baptizo it in vinegar and spices. 
you stick it in there, and it becomes a pickle. The identity of the cucumber is changed to that of a pickle, and there is nothing that anybody can do to change it back to a cucumber. Its identity is now a cucumber. It's been fully immersed and changed permanently. One more. I'm laboring this because it's so important. In 1 Corinthians 10, Paul says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. He's talking about the exodus there. Now, is Paul talking about water baptism happening in the exodus? No. The the Jews never even got wet. It was the Egyptians who got wet. Can I get an amen on that? They were the ones that got wet in that case. No, once they crossed the Red Sea, they were baptized into this new life, this new identity, and this new nation. And they could no longer go back to Egypt. There were guys in that group, though, that wanted to go back to Egypt. Remember? They were, oh, remember when we used to eat the leeks and the onions and how wonderful it was there, even though we were in complete and utter slavery. They wanted to go back, but they could not go back to Egypt. They had been baptized now. They had crossed over into this new life, a baptism into the life led by God through Moses. Well, you and I are baptized into the death of Christ, which finishes the reign of sin in our life, and we are baptized into his life through the resurrection, and we cannot go back from that. The the baptism here is Jesus, not water. And it's a permanent change in identity and life. We are now new creations in Christ. And the reason that Paul also tells us that we didn't just die with Christ, but we were buried, he specifically says, yes, we were buried with him, is because in ancient Greek antiquity, to be buried meant a severing of the old life. Our old life has been severed when we were buried, and then as as morbid and as gross as this might sound then jesus comes and digs us up and gives us a brand new life that is in him and we are changed and we have a new identity but even though paul is not talking about water baptism here what he is talking about certainly informs our understanding of water baptism It tells us that the sacrament of water baptism is not just a testimony of Jesus in our lives. It's not just an outward sign of an inward reality, but it is a clear declaration of our new life and our new identity in Christ. It's a declaration of our being joined by Christ to Christ for the resulting allegiance with Christ. And, And here's the thing about that. We can get baptized today all we want and generally not suffer much persecution for it. But in the first century, you had to show your allegiance to Caesar. And if you didn't, you could be executed. And so you could passively not show your allegiance, but never align with anybody else. But the minute you got baptized publicly and stated, I am aligned with Jesus, my new identity is in Christ, and He is Lord, you were asking literally to be physically murdered. Because people were understanding that you were saying, Jesus is the better and more important Caesar. He's what Caesar could never possibly be. So this is our new life. And interestingly, that word that's translated as newness, kenoitis, it literally means novel or novelty. Novel meaning unique and original. It's noteworthy. 
And we need to understand that this new life we have in Christ is actually a real novelty to other people who aren't in Christ and don't get it. People do not understand our new life in Christ because it's so different. Have you ever tried to explain to somebody who doesn't know Christ your faith? And, and, they, and they just don't get it and they look, like, look at you like you're from a, from a different planet or you have three heads or something. They, they just don't get it. They don't understand it because it is so different. And no one has ever experienced this novel, unique, noteworthy life apart from embracing Jesus. And the life is unique because it does what no other worldview does. It puts others first. It, it has hope in suffering. It believes that faith and not religion is what saves us. It, it believes that works don't save us, but, but our new identity in Christ does. It embraces the fact that there is one truth, capital one, capital truth. And, and, and it understands that we don't reach up to God hoping to to find him but in the incarnation of Jesus Christ himself God has reached down to us and has grabbed us and has saved us and has given us the gift of his life Boyce says it this way the secret to the gospel is not our present experience or emotions however meaningful intense and real they may be but rather the secret to the gospel is knowing that something has already happened to us and that we have been raised to walk in new life. This is now our identity. This is our new birth. This is our new life. And I want to close just with this one last illustration application. In Christ, God has given us this new identity. And we're going to unpack this new identity for the next several weeks in chapter 6. In this new identity, one of the things that we can do is we can quit cultivating the old identity. That's one of the things that we can do. We can quit cultivating that. You know, it's interesting to me. A lot of people have described Christianity as a religion of second chances. That if we mess it up the first time, we get a second chance. And if we mess it up the second time, we get a third chance. The problem with that is that, is that we're always going to mess it up. No matter how many chances we get, we're always going to mess it up. And when we describe a religion of second chances, as, as, as a religion of second chances, there's the implication there that we're going to get it right this time. We're really not. Because it's not about our behavior, it's about who we are in Christ. Christianity is not a religion of second chances, it's a religion of our new identity which we can never go back from. I, I am not a scientist. I did not do well in science in school. Uh, but I've, I've learned to appreciate it, and I, and I read a Occasionally, I'll read a book or two, usually over my head, but I can glean something from them. Uh, years ago, I read you know, the Stephen Hawking book, A Brief History of, of the World. Anybody read that book? Okay, in there, he talks a little bit about black holes, okay? And, and they're talking about trying to figure out these black holes. Black holes out in space, it just sucks things in, the gravity, and, and, it's, and its Hoover power is just amazing the way it can just suck things into it. Not even light can escape from a black hole. And physicists have tried for years to try to figure out well, what happens once you get sucked in. What happens when you go through the black hole? What's on the other side of the black hole? And since nobody has yet volunteered to go in there themselves, we, we, we can just speculate right now. But what they speculate is that you actually go into a new dimension. And if you've never heard of this idea of dimensionality, it's, it's kind of interesting. There's a lot of stuff on YouTube that you can watch and, and, and learn from. Yeah, you can learn from YouTube, I know. It's like citing Wikipedia. I get that, okay? But you can learn from that. And, and, and the idea is that, is that, like, we humans, maybe we operate in three dimensions, but God operates in nine dimensions. 
And if you go through a black hole, you actually go into maybe the sixth dimension or the fifth dimension, and the music is different and all that stuff anyway. So you're in a new dimension. Well, when you're in that new dimension, you can still behave in the same way that you did when you were in the third dimension, in the old dimension, but you can never, ever, ever go back and live in that old dimension. And that's who we are in Christ. We can still access that old self. We can still behave like our old self, but that's not who we are. We have died with Christ and we've been raised with Christ to walk in newness of life and to be alive to God. That's who we are. And so we should rejoice. Jack's going to come and lead us in our time of of response. Let me pray first. God, thank you for your word and its truth. And thank you that, that while your word challenges us, your word also is a source of great joy to us. And it should be today. God, we should be so thankful, so grateful, so, so joyful that by your Son, in your Son, through your Son, we have a new identity, that we are new creation. So God, let us lean into that and live in that. God, remind us that we can never go back and that your grace exceeds all of our sin. And so let us love you in response to that. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.